0: about it. Turn with me in your Bible to Acts chapter 12. Acts chapter 12. You know, if you've been around here at all, that I long for each and every one of us, each and every one of you, to live on mission with Jesus, to live with a sense of gospel intentionality, to have a sense of presence wherever it is that you are where you live, where you work, where you play, those things where you're passionate about around the city, to have a sense of presence and a sense of prayer for the people around you who do not know Jesus and a a desire to proclaim your story and, and the story of God and his love through Jesus Christ. It's in our mission. We want to joyfully follow Jesus and help others do the same. It's in our values. One of our values is God's mission. It's in our strategy, worship gatherings, discipleship groups, service teams, mission circles. We all want to leave out of here to live on mission with Jesus. In our circle, or in your circle, our circle in the world, it's in what we call our marks. Seek God, love others, pursue holiness, serve the church, steward your resources, share the gospel, multiply, disciples. So you might say it's everywhere in what we're trying to be and trying to do. But at the same time, exactly how that might work out in your life and in mine is most likely going to be absolutely different for every person in here from every person in here. How living on mission with Jesus in your circle will look different for for you than it will from the person sitting next to you, even if that person is your spouse. Or the person sitting in front of you. The context that you live in are different. Your neighborhood is different than mine. Your workplace is different than the person sitting behind you. Your personal makeup is different from anybody else in this room. You have unique gifts. And a unique personality. And unique abilities. There will be unique opportunities for you. And they will be different... Than mine, different from everybody else here. So I want us to at least agree that when it comes to living on mission or living with a sense of gospel intentionality, living that I'm one who's been sent into the world, let's all agree that doing nothing is not an option for the children of God. By saying that it's going to look different for every one of us is not saying that I'm letting any of us off the hook. We're not saying that some in this room are meant to live with a sense of being on mission with Jesus and others aren't. Not that at all. Every one of God's children, Jesus said, as the Father sent me, so I send you. But again, how that mission plays out through you might look different than anyone else here. And there may be times, maybe lots of times, when you may be at a loss for how that might play out in and through your life in any period of time. Lord, I know I'm supposed to live on mission. I know you've called me and I'm in. But I don't know what to do. I don't know what's next. You're convinced, but maybe unsure of what to do or what to do next. What can you and I do? When it wells up within us, I want to follow Jesus, and I want to help others do the same, but I'm not exactly sure how, or I'm not exactly sure what Jesus might be calling me to do in relationship to my neighbors, in relationship to the people who work with me, in relationship to my family. God, what would you want me to do? When you're unsure about it, where do we go? Well, in Acts chapter 12, verse 25, through chapter 13, verse 3, I think we get an answer. And as I see it, it's this. When you're convinced but unsure, seek the Lord for his missional direction. Seek the Lord for his missional direction. Watch this in verse 25. Now, let's stop right there. We've been making our way through this book. And this book is about what happened after Jesus died, rose, and ascended up into heaven. And the answer is, Jesus sent his Holy Spirit to indwell his people and empower them for mission in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the remotest parts of the earth. In chapter 1 through 6, 7, we saw the gospel birthed in Jerusalem and then expanded in Jerusalem. Luke tells us that even some of the priests have come to faith in Jesus at the end of in chapter 6, verse 7. Then in 6.8 through 9.31 and on even to 12.24, we saw the gospel begin to extend outside of Jerusalem into Judea, into Samaria, into Galilee, and even as far north as Antioch. Those were some incredible stories in 6.8 all the way through 12.24. You'll remember some of them. Of Stephen... This man who had been appointed to serve tables but who then got an opportunity to preach and he preached a message of a God who's never been tied to any one place, always with his people wherever they go. It was a foretaste of what was to come as God's people moved out of Jerusalem into Judea, Samaria, and even further, God went with them. Or a man like Philip. He too was one of those appointed to serve tables But who caught the vision with his pioneering spirit, he took the gospel to the Samaritans. And if you were around for that, you remember the Samaritans were hated by the Jews. Half-breeds of the Jews and the Assyrians, worshipped in a different place. And on and on the differences went. 700 years of enmity between these two, and yet Philip says, I'm taking the gospel to them. Peter and John had to go check it out. And when they checked it out, on their way back to Jerusalem, they were stopping in Samaritan villages preaching the gospel. And then there was the story of the conversion of Paul, or of Peter. I'm sorry, of Paul. And the, the hint that this one is going to take the gospel even further to the Gentiles. And there was the story of Peter and the vision he had to declare no one unclean and going to Cornelius' house, the Gentile. And the Gentile family and friends there, hearing the gospel and the Holy Spirit coming upon them. Amazing stuff. The gospel in Jerusalem, then into Judea and Samaria and Galilee, all the way up to Antioch. But the reality is, for all of that, We're still on the eastern shores of the Mediterranean. It's not until now in 1225 that we're going to burst out of the eastern Mediterranean and take the gospel to Asia Minor all the way around the Aegean Sea and all the way to Rome. God's heart is seen here in this introduction, if you will, of the characters who will now carry the story forward and barnabas and saul we've been introduced to these guys but they become and in particular paul saul paul becomes the main character as the gospel's now going to go to the remotest parts of the earth this was always god's intention we have to remind ourselves that the great commission if you will didn't start in matthew 28 after Jesus died, rose, and ascended, and then told his guys to take it to the nations. As much as he did that, it's an old, old story of God's desire to bring his blessing to all the nations of the earth. It begins as early as Genesis 1, 2, and 3, you could argue, but it gets real explicit in chapter 12 when God chooses Abram. It says, I'm going to bless you, and through you, I'm going to bless the entire world, the nations of the world. It runs throughout the Psalms and throughout the prophets, and it certainly found its expression in Jesus on that mountain. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations. And it begins to get played out in earnest right here. And, of course, in Revelation, we will see it around the throne Men and women, boys and girls from every tribe, tongue, nation, and people of the earth. God's heartbeat. When we study Jonah, remember this? If you could put a stethoscope to God, boom, 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 people. Going to glorify himself by winning a people for himself from every tribe and tongue, nation of the earth. God, if someone were to put a stethoscope to our heart, does it beat with the same rhythm? Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their mission. You remember from chapter 11... Their mission was to take some money that the church in Antioch had put together and take it to Jerusalem for the struggling church, especially in light of the famine that was going to come. Taking along with him John, who was also called Mark. Now there were at Antioch in the church that was there prophets and teachers. Barnabas and Simeon, who was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene and Menaean who'd been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then, when they had fasted and prayed, they laid their hands on them and sent them away. I think that this was a church that was convinced that God had called them to be on mission. In fact, they already were on mission. These believers, let's just talk about a few of them, Barnabas and Saul. The missionary activity of Saul, Paul, we'll call him Paul from now, that's how we know him, the Apostle Paul. The missionary activity of the Apostle Paul does not begin right here. This is about 14 years into Paul's Christian life. We think he was converted around 33 AD, not long after Jesus died and rose from the dead and that for 14 years he has been sharing the gospel making disciples developing leaders planting churches in damascus in arabia in syria in cilicia back home in tarsus for 12 13 14 years that's what this man has been up to barnabas we know as well had a heart for what god was doing He loved it. He apparently knew some believers in Damascus when Paul had been converted and began to do evangelism, discipleship in Damascus, and then Paul came to Jerusalem and all the Christians were scared of him. Oh, man, this is the guy who kills us. And Barnabas said, oh, no, 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 no. He's now come to know the Lord. He's one of us. Apparently, Barnabas knew of the activity that was happening in Damascus, When the church up in Antioch was planted, he happily went from Jerusalem up to Antioch to see what God was doing. Here apparently was a man that was passionate about leading people to Jesus, passionate about not just the Jews coming to faith, but the Gentiles as well. This fellow named Simeon, who's also called Niger, that word in Latin means dark complexion, he probably, is from north africa he's a black man and some speculate this might be simon of syrene who when jesus christ couldn't carry his cross anymore they grabbed this man and had him haul it to golgotha we're not sure about that but many believe that it was lucius of Cyrene is probably a black african man as well manan who'd been brought up with herod the tetrarch this is Herod Antipas, who put John the Baptist to death and who was part of the trial of Jesus Christ that would send him to the cross. And here's a man who grew up with him. That's most likely what that word means, was brought up with Herod. It's probably that they were childhood friends of some sort. And he was brought up with Herod as well, and where Herod would crucif- or would behead John the Baptist and be part of, of the crucifixion of Jesus, this man would come to put his faith in Jesus Christ and would be a part of what was happening in this incredible church up in Antioch. These guys were going for it. And it appears that they were seeking the Lord for what would be next. I forgot to mention that these men who were from Cyrene Lucius of Cyrene it could be that Simon Simeon was from there as well there were men from Cyrene who had first taken the gospel up to Antioch and it could be that these were two of the ones who had done it these were folks who had been at this for some time and yet the implication may be that they were wondering what's next Lord, what's next? Where do you want us to go from here as a church? Lord, shall we begin a world missions program? Should it be now? Should we send some of our own teachers as the first missionaries? Should it be Saul or Simeon or Lucius or Manan or Barnabas? Should we send two or three or four? Which way should we send them by land or by sea? Should we fund them fully or expect them to work for their keep or hope that there will be sons of peace in the towns where they go who will feed them? Should other churches join with us? These are maybe just some of the questions that they had in their mind. As they were following Jesus and as they were living on mission, there was a sense of, Lord, we want to know what's next for us. We're convinced, but we're unsure. Should we go? Should we send them? And should we send them now? And if we send them, who do we send? How many do we send? And how do we send them? And so what they did was they sought the Lord over this. Verse 2, while they were ministering to the Lord, probably that phrase, it's the only time it's used in the New Testament. Probably the idea is as they were worshiping the Lord. This looks like it's a gathering of the, these church leaders and probably others within the church because of verse 1 in the church that was there. They were worshiping, they were fasting. Apparently, in verse 3 2, surely they were praying, they were seeking God's direction they were convinced but maybe unsure of what next and so they're seeking god worshiping him ascribing to him glory and power and honor singing probably but maybe also in their prayers just adoring him Worshiping him, exalting him, speaking highly of him. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. God, you are, and just filling in the blank with magnificent and powerful words of his grace. You are gracious, and you are loving, and you are kind, and you are righteous, and you are sovereign, and you are wise. God, we worship you. We exalt you. Wanted to, if you will, put God in His place, and in so doing, put themselves in their place, a place of dependence. And they were fasting. Well, here's a spiritual discipline that I do not know much of. Some of you, probably, fast. Regularly. It's a spiritual discipline that was never much talked about in all of my discipleship and ministry. It is a spiritual discipline that I have engaged in from time to time. But I'm certainly no expert in it. But it's when I come to verses like this that it's kind of like deep calls to deep, huh? It's like, oh, there's that word again. We love in Matthew 6, when you pray. But what about that next paragraph, when you fast? And here, here are these wonderful men, and I, I suspect that the church is there, it's men and women, They're ministering to the Lord And they're fasting It seems to me that That fasting And listen I'm just trying to learn As you may be It's a voluntary Abstention from food Or any other Legitimate gift from God It's it's generally and usually food But it doesn't have to be It's a voluntary abstention from food or any other legitimate gift from God as an expression that one has not become so enamored with the gift that one's love for the giver has been surpassed. Fasting is not abstaining from sinful things. Fasting is is abstaining from legitimate things, good things, like food. But how easy is it for our hearts, our souls, to get so enamored with the gift that our love for it, our satisfaction in it comes to surpass our love for the giver, our satisfaction in the giver. It may be food for you. It may be drink for you. It may be television for you. It may be the internet for you. It may be your phone for you. Any and all of them legitimate good things. But maybe we're so consumed by them and so attached to them and find such satisfaction and joy in the gift Maybe it surpasses our love for and devotion to the giver. And so what fasting, I believe, can be is it's a voluntary abstention from this as an expression that, oh God, you, I want you more than I want this. I desire you more than I desire this. God, I want to love you more than I love this. And it's an expression of one's desire and satisfaction in him Over the stuff and in the process I think it becomes a way that God can break us from our love and devotion and whatever it might be so that our love and devotion to him is intensified I think it also can become what one author called an exclamation point at the end of the sentence, we hunger for you, O God, to come in power. It's a cry, as this author said, with our body, not just our soul. I really mean it, Lord, this much. I hunger for you. I want the manifestation of yourself more than I want food. And so fasting, can become an exclamation point to our prayers where we're longing for god and we're longing for his leadership we're longing for his direction we're longing for him and so it's a i I mean it lord I, i want you more than i want food i want you more than i want this i'm longing for you i need you please And so they engaged in it. If if just seeing that little word there kind of calls out to your spirit, and you go, "I've I've never fasted. I don't even know anything about it. Obviously, you could go online and learn a lot, and there's tons there. John Piper wrote a really good book called A Hunger for God. You might want to get that and read it. One of the classic books was written by a guy named Arthur Willis called God's Chosen Fast. You might want to get that. Or you might get Donald Whitney's book The Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life and he has a chapter on fasting. We we talk about reading our Bible, don't we? And we talk about prayer. We even talk about worship and the fellowship with other saints as these are spiritual disciplines to to engage in, but so often we don't talk about fasting. Maybe we should more. And so they were worshiping God, and it was accompanied by fasting. We want you, God. We hunger for you. And surely they were praying. They were asking, and God answered their prayers He led them while they were ministering to the Lord and fasting. The Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. How exactly? We're not real sure. It could have been that one of these with the gift of prophecy in verse 1 spoke that word. It could have been that as they had been Praying about this and no doubt talking about this, I think it's a part. And this is getting into the weeds here. Whenever Paul and Barnabas had gone up to Jerusalem to take the the financial gift to Jerusalem, I think that's the same visit as Galatians two one to ten. And in that visit, Paul tells us not only did he go up because of a revelation, and that was probably the the prophecy of the famine to come. But he also took that opportunity with Peter, James, and John. He called them those who were reputed to be pillars, these leaders in the Jerusalem church, to present to them the gospel which he had been preaching among the Gentiles. He said, For fear that I might be running or had run in vain. I think while he was there delivering the money, he and Barnabas had a meeting with Peter, James, and John and said, Hey, guys, let us tell you what's going on among the Gentiles, has been for years, and here's what we're thinking about. We're thinking about going even further we're not exactly sure what god wants us to do but we're thinking about asia we're thinking about ephesus and philippi and thessalonica and athens berea we're thinking about rome we're thinking about spain and so paul said here's the gospel that i've been preaching among the gentiles and peter james and john he says when they did not compel titus to be circumcised apparently titus was there with them they're saying, "Hey, here's one of our Gentile converts. He hasn't been circumcised. What do you all think about him? Do you think he has to be circumcised?" They said, "No, he does not." They didn't compel Titus to be circumcised. He said, "They added nothing to me." Probably means they didn't add anything to the gospel he was preaching. And he said, "They gave me the right hand of fellowship." So, all of that to say, I think Peter or Paul and Barnabas had been thinking about this along with these brothers. They'd been talking about it. What does God want us to do next? What do you think? They'd been praying about it. They'd been seeking the Lord about it. And maybe in the midst of that, one of them said, you know what, guys? I think this is, what, I think this is where we ought to go. And they talked about that. And there was a consensus. Yes. Yes. and they attribute that to the Holy Spirit over in chapter 15. I love this little phrase. We'll get there here in several weeks, but they're writing a letter to the Gentiles. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. I think they got to a point here in verse 2 through their prayers, through their fasting, through their deliberations. where Somebody said, I think this is what God is leading us to do. And they, yes. And looking back on it, they would say the Holy Spirit was in that. The Holy Spirit led us, and they went for it. When they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. Real quick, are you looking for God's missional direction in your life? You're convinced. Yeah, Mitch, I've heard you a thousand times. And yeah, I've read. But you're unsure. How does that play out in my life? God, what do you want me to do? How do you want my family to do this? Might I suggest that you seek the Lord through worship, fasting, and prayer. Lord, Lord, seeking you. I want to know from you how this plays out for me, for my family. Many of you are in one of our community groups, and we've had some community group training a couple of weeks ago, and one of the things I think is gaining some steam among our community groups is the idea of finding something in our city to serve together. The community group coming together and and, and serving in our city in some way. And might I say to our community group leaders and all of you who are in those groups. As you sit around as a community group and as you think about, hey, how should we serve together this fall? You're convinced, but you're not sure. Maybe you all ought to worship and fast and pray. Seek the Lord. I noted in our commu- in our state of the church a couple of weeks ago that I'm hopeful that one of the things this fall that can come together is a, is a clearer answer to the question: Where is God leading us as a church family over the next several years? Among our elder team, we we have one of our brothers who is, by God's grace, he, he, he lobs fasting in there. Like, hey guys, it's kind of a forgotten thing sometimes. Maybe for some of y'all, maybe for all of y'all it's not. But for many of us it can be. And he just, prayer and fasting, men, Prayer and fasting. And so I would say to us elders, as we think about where God may be wanting us to go, As a church family, maybe we ought to seek the Lord with worship, with fasting, and with prayer. Convinced God's calling you to live on mission, but unsure exactly what's next, seek the Lord for His missional direction. Let's pray. Oh, God, I pray for my brothers and sisters as they will, as we all will scatter from this place into our neighborhoods, workplaces, wherever it might be, as light and salt. Lord, may we have a sense of looking to you and depending upon you for direction for our community groups, for our church as a whole, for our elders who who lead us. Oh God, may we not be so convinced of our own wit, of our own experience, of our own wisdom. May we humble ourselves before you and seek you. We'll trust, God, that you will lead us along the way. And Lord, as as you do, may we be like this church in Antioch. Verse 4, so being sent out, they obeyed what they believed you were leading them to do. May it be so of us. Might you glorify yourself through us, Lord, as we humble ourselves and look to you. And as you lead, we seek to follow. Glorify yourself, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.